Hi, everybody. This is Sam Jacobs. Welcome to this week on the Sales Hacker Podcast. It's going to be an incredible episode. We've got Mark Roberge, the author of the Sales Acceleration Formula, lecturer and a teacher and a faculty member at HBS, and of course, uh, the first CRO for HubSpot that helped scale that business uh, to over $100 million in annual recurring revenue. Mark's going to talk to us about the four key elements that go into a predictable sales model. That is hiring the same type of person, giving them the same type of training, generating and producing the same type of leads and quantity of leads on a consistent basis, and then holding them accountable to running the same type of sales process. And if you do those four things, you can get to predictable revenue. We're going to dive into that and a lot more on the upcoming interview. But first, I want to thank our sponsors. We've got Aircall. Aircall is a phone system designed for the modern sales team. Everybody needs a telephone system, I think. And they seamlessly integrate into your CRM, eliminating data entry for your reps and providing you with greater visibility into your team's performance through advanced reporting. They can also, again, do implementation very, very quickly. So you can add new lines in minutes and you can use in-call coaching to reduce ramp time for your new reps. So that website is aircall.io forward slash sales hacker. And there you can see why Uber, Dun & Bradstreet and Pipedrive, as well as thousands of others, trust Aircall for the the more critical sales conversations. Our second sponsor is Outreach. Uh, that is Outreach.io, the leading sales engagement platform. Outreach triples the productivity of sales teams and empowers them to drive predictable and measurable revenue growth. By prioritizing the right activities and scaling customer engagement with intelligent automation, Outreach makes customer-facing teams more effective and improves visibility into what really drives results. So hop over to Outreach.io forward slash sales hacker to see how thousands of customers, including Cloudera, Glassdoor, Pandora, and Zillow, rely on Outreach to deliver higher revenue per sales rep. And now, on with the interview. Hi, folks, and welcome back to the Sales Hacker Podcast. It is your host, Sam Jacobs. I'm the founder of the New York Revenue Collective, and I'm also the chief revenue officer of a wonderful little company called Behavox. But today, we're going to have a very well-known, noteworthy, heralded even, thought leader and revenue leader within the startup community, none other than Mark Roberge. For those of you that aren't familiar with Mark's best-selling book, The Sales Acceleration Formula, or his work at HubSpot, let me give you his brief background before we talk to Mark. So, Mark currently is a senior lecturer in the Entrepreneurial Management Unit at HBS, that is Harvard Business School. He teaches entrepreneurial sales and marketing in the second-year MBA program. Prior to his work at Harvard, he served as the SVP of Global Sales and Service at HubSpot, where he scaled revenue from zero to $100 million. And he expanded the team from one, I believe that one was probably him, to 450 employees. Mark was ranked number 19 in Forbes' top 30 social sellers in the world. He was also a the 2010 Salesperson of the Year at the MIT Sales Conference. He's active with a number of startups, as you'll hear about, as a board member, as an advisory member, as an investor. I believe he's also talking about uh, raising a fund, which he'll tell us about. And uh, welcome, Mark. We're excited to have you. Gee, Sam, thank you. There, that illustrious uh, introduction. <laughs> Appreciate it. You're, you're certainly overselling here. <laughs> Well, I'm a, I'm a trained salesperson in the in the mold of a young Roberge, and so I got to make sure I make you sound uh, authoritative and credible. <laughs> you did a good job. Thank you. 
Thank you. So for folks that don't know you and don't know the book, it's often useful to just get a little bit of background. Uh, now you're a famous author, but originally you started off coming out of MIT and then working sort of in startup land. Give us a little bit about your background. I think you're a trained engineer. So tell us how you ended up in sales and give us some of the, the details from the amazing ride that you had at HubSpot. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I studied engineering undergrad just because my parents told me continually that I'm good at math and that's what I should do. And really used that to early in my career to move into uh, uh, writing code. And then quickly fell in love with entrepreneurship. So I really just, to this day, consider myself more of an entrepreneur than a sales leader. I did a bunch of businesses in my 20s, ended up at MIT for business school because I loved their entrepreneurial program. And eventually found my way into HubSpot, which was three people at the time. And there was a hole in their need for someone to sell. And I was you know, helping them along those lines. So that's how I ended up in sales. It was a bit serendipitous and not intentional. And I was very lucky that when I jumped into sales, we were going through sort of a pivotal moment for the field in general. You know, We saw a lot of companies moving from a field sales org to something that was inside sales oriented. We saw for the first time marketing be able to step up to take a more proactive involvement in lead generation. And those two items made the use of data, the capture of data in CRMs, and the use of science and process for the first time was enabled much more so than it had in the past. So that was really my good fortune and blessing was I was able to stumble into a field at a time where my unique advantages in terms of process data and science were for the first time really well leveraged in, in the industry. Was there a time when you joined HubSpot where that epiphany sort of shone its light upon you, where you realized that all of a sudden it's not as much art and sort of schmoozing, but there is a science and a predictability that can be generated from the sales discipline? Yeah, our Series B investor, David Scott at Matrix Partners, really helped me see that uniqueness. To be honest, for the first two or three years, I was certainly practicing it. But the only reason I was practicing it was because I'm a geek who was under a lot of pressure. And when I get under pressure, I need the data. <laughs> so it wasn't like I was trying to set myself up for some sort of like storyline or book or anything like that. It's just how I was. And I remember exactly the moment when it was at some sort of venture capital holiday party where I ran into David and he said, the industry just needs your perspective for the following reasons. It's great that you don't have a traditional background because we're at sort of a turning point. It eventually led it to a, a great article that he wrote on his Four Entrepreneurs blog that I think nicely codified the thinking. That article led to a good foundation for the book and for you know me going out and, and helping entrepreneurs that as HubSpot started to blow up and as more and more people started to reach out to me and be like, how did you do this? How can we do this? And I saw a continual pattern in the questions that people were asking me and the answers that helped them the most that really led to the foundation of the book and the inspiration on, and motivation to write it. So let's dive into that a little bit because a zero to a hundred and, um, you know, being the, uh, the human, the man or the woman that can see that full sweep of scale is pretty rare. There's a lot of times that folks, they are viewed as the builder from zero to 10 or the person that can take it from 30 to a hundred, but it's really rare to see somebody that can sort of follow the entire trajectory all the way past a hundred million. So what are the elements that you describe in the book that helped you put a model and a plan together that enabled that growth? Yeah, sure. So I always joke that the mission that I had for myself was predictable, scalable revenue growth. And it amazes me to this day 
when I get on stage and talk about that mission, every venture capitalist eyes just light up. Like, That's, those are exactly the types of companies I want to invest in. It's like, it's such an obvious four words, but for whatever reason, that's an epiphany for investors. And so for the entrepreneurs out there or the sales reps out there who eventually want to go off and start a company and raise money, put that those four words at the beginning of your sales and marketing um, strategy, and it will work with the investors. Now, what's more telling, I think, is the double click of the four tactics behind that strategy. And that really was the, I guess, blueprint for my sales machine that I wanted to build. And so those four elements were, number one, hiring the same successful salesperson every time. Number two, onboarding them in a very standard way that controlled the output of those reps coming out of onboarding. Number three, providing them with the same quality and quantity of lead flow and demand gen each month. And number four, holding those reps accountable to the same sales process against those leads. And so that was the logical machine and the components of the machine that I wanted to focus on. You know, when you lay it out that scientifically or, or just logically, it makes a tremendous amount of sense. Let's unpack the elements a little bit one by one. But it occurs to me that if I'm thinking about a company and its potential for scale, I have confidence that if I design an interview process in a consistent way and measure the same qualities, I can hire the same people and I can train them. The one thing that I don't always have visibility on is can I generate the same volume and quality of leads consistently? Do you agree, disagree? How do you think about lining up sales and marketing? It seems to me that marketing is almost, if you can't do that, you can't do the other three things. Would you agree with that? I do. I would say of the four things I listed, the most difficult are the first one around hiring. Even with the detailed discipline that I brought to that after hundreds of hires, I still got it wrong like 10 to 20% of the time. It's just really hard. And then I think to your point, Sam, the demand gen, the scalable demand gen, it's just a continual battle. Because even when you figure out one channel, they all have ceilings on them. And they all run out of steam or just can't scale to the revenue growth goals that you have. So it, it definitely is a, is a continual struggle and something that needs to be worked on. When you're thinking about hiring the same type of person, walk us through the evolution of the HubSpot interview process. Or Because I think a lot of people struggle with what is the ideal profile of a seller? How did you define that? What is your ideal profile? And what is the interview process or the grading mechanism that you used to confirm to yourself that you're hiring the same type of person? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so I'd have to go back to the first year, probably around our eighth the eighth hire that I made. And I had convinced the number one seller at a large public company in the Boston area to quit and join our company. And at the time, we were still like 20 people in a garage across the street from MIT. And I was just like, this is amazing. I mean, this is literally the top seller of an 800-person sales team. I can't wait for them to join our company and just teach us how to sell. It amazed me that months after the hire, that seller was not our best seller. I mean, they weren't the worst, but they weren't the best. And I was like, are you kidding me? We're 20 hacks over here. And this person who year after year was the top seller of 800 reps does not evolve to be our best seller. And that like really redirected my thinking on this whole like hiring formula and process was, you know, as I took a step back and reflected, I was like, wow, wait a minute. The context from where they sold, where the company was literally running Super Bowl ads, 
Everyone in the country knew the brand. They knew exactly what that person was selling. It took a few minutes to just decide if there was a fit or not. That couldn't have been more different than the HubSpot sales contacts at the time, where no one knew what the heck we were. No one even knew what inbound marketing was. It took a long time to describe it, how it worked. And you could imagine that the seller that would succeed in that public company context, the optimal seller, would be way different than the optimal seller in the HubSpot context. And it was that moment that I realized it is really dangerous to go to a conference and meet a sales leader from a different company and say, hey, what are you looking for in a salesperson? And copy that. Because the ideal answer to that question is so correlated to your context. The stage of your business, the category maturity in which you're selling, the complexity of your product, the specific buyer, whether it's a marketer or an IT person or a finance person, are you selling in Europe or Asia or North America? All these things define your context and give you insight into your optimal sales hire. And so what I did was I took a step back and said, okay, well, knowing what I know about our context, what would be the 10 criteria that I think would be optimal for us? And let me clearly define what each one is. Let me try to take a stab at what a low or medium or high score would be so I can rank these people as like an eight, a five, or a three on each criteria. And let me devise an interview process to go at that. And every few months, make some hires, see how they do, and ask myself, this person's crushing it, why? And am I adequately testing against that in my interview process? And this person's struggling, why? And am I adequately testing against that? And just set up a learning environment that's unique to us and over time hone in on the ideal profile. And so I just continued to do that. And it wasn't long before I had enough data points to actually geek out and run a regression analysis and try to put some stats behind this. So that was what what qualities did you discover specific? I guess I have two questions. One is how many of the qualities were superficial, meaning they were on the surface visible, like they worked at this type of company, they had this type of experience. And then how many of them were character driven qualities such as, you know, courage or ambition or something like that? Pretty much all of them were character driven. I can tell you the five that surfaced for us. They were coachability, curiosity, intelligence, prior success, and work ethic. And so how do you, how do you uh, test for coachability? Let me just walk through the interview. Um, yeah. What was interesting, Sam, about the coachability was that was a great example of one that I completely missed for two years. It was not in my opening thesis, and it took me reflecting time and time again of people who were great sellers, who came in and I thought were going to be a home run and didn't. And I just had to see the pattern and eventually that one rose to the top. So my interview in in two minutes here is it starts in the lobby when I shake your hand. It's just an opportunity for the seller. Do they recognize me? Do they Have they done their homework? Did they ask me about my kid's flag football game this weekend? It's not a showstopper, but it's an opportunity that they did the research and asked some good questions right from the start. I get into the room with them. I warm them up with like, why are you interested in in HubSpot? Where are you headed in your career? Is it leadership? Is it selling bigger things? You know, I dive into their prior success in terms of, I see you're an account executive at Acme Software Company. How many other account executives were there and where did you rank? Was that on revenue bookings? Will your references validate that? And then we get into the meat and potatoes around the coachability. So I'll say, Sam, you know, 
let's role play on a HubSpot example. Let, let's pretend like a VP of marketing from a security software company came to the website last night, downloaded an ebook, and it's your lead that you're going to follow up this morning. Let's do it. I'll play the buyer. And so I watch if they sort of show up and throw up and just spend 10 minutes telling me everything I could have read on the website, or if they actually dive in with good, curious questions and listen and, and some nice following questions around developing my pain. I test them hard on SEO or inbound marketing to see if they did their research and learned. And then most importantly, I stop the, the role play five minutes in and say, hey, Sam, how do you think you did? Self-assess. If you're like, I was awesome... I'm not really that psyched about your, you know, your ability to look internally and, and reflect and see how you could have improved versus if you say some good things and some critical things on how you could have improved, that's great. And then I sit there and coach you. I tell you one good thing you did well in one area of improvement, I'll coach you for a few minutes and I'll have you redo the role play. And so almost everybody screws up the second one, but you can just observe how they're taking the coaching, whether they're able to apply anything. And gosh, if you can move the needle even just a little bit in that 15 minutes, imagine what it's going to be like spending a day, week, and month with that individual. And so that's really a quick summary of the process I used with the big asterisk that those five criteria were unique to HubSpot at that time. And just be a little careful around copying every piece of it and think really hard about the iterative process you should go through to develop your own unique hiring formula. I think it's good advice. I think not to undermine that last part of your statement, but I think coachability is pretty universally. I think coachability and curiosity and then correspondingly empathy are just natural broad traits that are going to determine success for a lot of folks. I do, um, especially the people on this podcast. Like in, in startups and in, in B2B contact, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. So moving on to uh, training them and onboarding them in the same way, I've had the unique pleasure of spending some time with Andrew Quinn. How early did you invest in a separate training and enablement, however you want to call it, but somebody that was not, that whose only role was to train the new class of reps and then to make sure that they onboarded in the right way according to the ramp model that you determined? Yeah. And Quinn was, was my individual and he's a rock star and I couldn't have done half the stuff we did without him. He was amazing. Such a, a blessed find for me. There were three, what I'd call non-quota carrying overhead roles that I think are critical in setting up your team that you have to at some point make a decision when you're going to do it and make a case to your head of say, your CEO or whoever to, to spend. The three roles are recruiting, training, and operations. You know, those are critical roles to like, you know, metrics. I went after recruiting first, just because it was like, I thought that was the more difficult one to be able to go after passive candidates. The onboarding was second and the operations was third. Um, all of them, the recruiting probably happened in year one, training probably in year two, and operations probably quickly following. I don't know in hindsight if I would change that order. Jeez, that's a tough one, because they're all critical. But that was really around the time when I was doing it. I had to just, you know, when you're an entrepreneur and you're starting out, you got to do the eight hours a week, so you got to fill in the gaps. And I was able to put together a reasonable training curriculum on my own that was at least a B minus and got us by. And I remember Halligan was tough on me and made me earn the right to make those hires and kind of cut deals of like I had a certain revenue attainment rate that I could make the hire. So that was roughly when we put it in place. Makes sense. And I guess a few more questions on that. Was the training and enablement person 
I guess that's year two, but you know, at some point, did you feel pressure to put a quota caring person into head of training or did you find a specific skill set and that was different than somebody that you were taking off the sales floor when you put them into that enablement role? Yeah, I tried external all the time. I don't think it's a bad call to go with someone internally, but that's a tough shift. Number one, you're pretty early then and you have to take a top performer out, which is tough. And the other thing is I'm not sure I see a huge overlap between my top performers and the skill I'm looking for in that trainer. Because the top performers typically are, you know, they're they're very motivated by money per se be a little aggressive. Oftentimes they're not necessarily the best teacher. So it's a really hard hire because you need to find someone that certainly understands has probably even done it themselves on the front line, but is more motivated by the coaching and teaching and is actually quite good at it. So I was lucky with Quinn. I mean, he he had a, a multi-decade career in selling, but he was just found that like, you know what? I don't like it as much. I don't like the pressure of carrying quota. I don't like being on the road. I love coaching reps and I'm damn good at it. And so I just got lucky. Um, and maybe that is a little bit of a blueprint on, on what you could look for is there are people who have evolved in their career and you know don't want to be out there selling million dollar deals and chasing quota every quarter. And they're quite skilled at the craft of selling and teaching the craft of selling. And that's what I found with Quinn. And did you find any tricks or tips in the onboarding program? Any types of learning modules? Is it sort of like, well, you got you have to figure out how each person learns and then develop a program specific to them? Or, or what really worked for you when you were thinking about onboarding effectively? Yeah, there were two things that stood out. And especially as I went out and coached many companies, two common mistakes that I saw them make. The first was over-relying on what I'd call ride-alongs or rep shadowing as part of training. You know, like, hey, Bob, welcome to the company. You remember Susan, our top rep from the interview process, your train's going to be sitting next to her for a month. (laughs) And, you know, it's like, you know this well, Sam, too, is like, even your best reps have bad habits and few best reps are good teachers. And so that seemed like a formula for disaster of like, you know, having a rep learning from another rep and just misinterpreting what best practice was and potentially losing out on kind of leveraging their own strengths in the sales process just because they didn't see this one rep using those strengths and how they sold. And so I instead took a step back and said, listen, my job here is to craft some sort of codified blueprint that can provide a guidance to reps on how to navigate this process while at the same time allowing an amount of flexibility for them to sort of make it their own within those boundaries. That also proved to be a really nice sort of quantification opportunity where Quinn and I developed a certification around, say, like 20 to 25 checkpoints on skills that we wanted them to have mastered or behaviors we wanted them to have mastered by the end of the 30 days and letting Quinn certify those people against those capabilities. That's just a big opportunity is like, listen, if you put that in place and over time you're able to validate that those certification scores correlate with long-term success, then you've now created a, a really quick learning opportunity for you to check that your hiring is not falling off within 30 days of the hire, as opposed to having to wait six months. And oh, by the way, if that 
certification score doesn't correlate with long-term success, I'd really question the effectiveness you're onboarding and what it's telling you about preparing people for the job. That was one big one was just the quantification piece and setting up the situation as opposed to onboarding. The second one was how much time is spent on product training versus buyer training. I find that a lot of onboarding processes spend a lot of time on product training, which is fine, but not enough time on the buyer training. You just, you just, you just shot an arrow through my heart. (laughs) Exactly what is happening right now. Exactly. I mean, it's like, I would much rather have my reps be an A plus and understanding the buyer's perspective than an A plus on every friggin' advanced feature that my product can do. I mean, the way we did it was every single rep spent most of their time in training, creating their own blog using HubSpot, creating a social media following, ranking in Google, setting up an email nurturing campaign, building landing pages, doing the job of the buyer they would eventually sell to, feeling that pain, building confidence that the techniques worked, and then they were just such a more powerful seller when they get out there. That was the other piece was just an underinvestment in weight in buyer training versus product training. I think that is, uh, that's worth the price of admission for this podcast, just to <laughs> put, a, put a stamp on that. We can spend a lot of time talking about the right type of lead and, and some of the mechanisms that you use to align sales and marketing. But for this audience, I also think it's important to dive into a little bit of process. So, you know, you were a new, at some point you were not, at some point you had experience as a sales manager and salesperson just by dint of the fact that you had been there for a while. But did you copy and embrace, you know, did you read a bunch of books and say, okay, we're going to do sort of Miller Hyman or how did you work out what is the sales process appropriate for HubSpot and what are the key elements of it? Yeah. I mean, I did go out and take meetings with the salespeople and executives at Miller Hyman and Sandler and Hoothway and all those places. And I learned a lot from reading about their methodologies and talking to their people. I mean, they are just experts at the craft. The only beef that I had with it was because they were trying to build scalable businesses, they had sort of a off-the-shelf methodology. And as I looked at them, I was like, you know, half of that really applies to us and will be helpful, but the other half is just going to confuse my reps. Can I just take this piece? And there wasn't a lot of like configurability and customizability and flexibility along those lines. And so because of that, I just never took the plunge and committed to one. But I did leverage all those discussions to build out our own. So I think that gets back to just a theme that I think you're probably hearing through this process that I really believe as a, a philosophical belief in sales is like, so much of this is context driven. And so much of this is just understanding what is unique about your context and building everything from who you hire to how you compensate to the sales playbook and process you develop to the type of demand generation you decide to invest and execute in around that context. And so that's essentially what I did was, you know, took the bits and pieces that were highly applicable and built out our playbook from scratch. One of the things that I think about as I read the book and as I listen to you speak is time. And, you know, if you're going to figure out what is the ideal hiring profile for somebody, to your point, 
you need to establish what your scientific method, you establish the hypothesis on what you think the qualities are. And, but then you need time. You need time to evaluate whether you were right or not and then adjust. And that takes time. And so, you know, that can be months. That can be six, nine, 12 months. How did you deal with sort of it sounds like, you know, as the company was growing, there was a certain amount of information that you knew and a certain amount of information that you were testing for but didn't yet have data around. How did you deal with that ambiguity? Was that a problem or an issue or was it just something that, you know, it is what it is? Yeah, I mean, it's a huge problem. I mean, as an entrepreneur, we're constantly trying to figure out how can I learn faster and more accurately with less time and less money. You have to constantly be asking yourself that. And Sam, you're poking at one of the more difficult areas where just that learning curve around hiring, it's so hard because you honestly, I did not know whether a rep was going to work out until nine months in, even years into it, where my managers would be like, listen, that hire I made, bad hire. Then <laughs> it's not working out. And then a year later, they're one of our top reps. That and happens all the time. Happens all the time. And so I don't know what to say there. You know, it freaked me out. What freaks me out most is I just don't know for such a long period of time. The only thing that I kind of was able to get insight on was I would tell those managers, okay, do this for me. Go in and like be very prescriptive about what the specific skill you want to work on and develop with them that you think will be most helpful to them. Craft a great coaching exercise around that skill and around the learning preferences that you perceive from that rep. And just work on them for like two or three weeks on it. And then let's ask ourselves, did they improve? And was the improvement sustained? And so if either answers are no to those questions, then we'll probably need to move on this and it's not working out. But if we are able to improve them and sustain it, it might take longer, but I think we'll get there over time. And so that was like the only early indicator that I could see that helped me learn fast. Yeah, which speaks to the coachability point, which is if you can sense some coachability early in the interview process and, you know, not to put too fine a point on it, but if they're not dumb, if they're smart and they're coachable, then there's probably upside potential. So, Mark, you were at HubSpot for all those years. You got them past $100 million, and then ultimately you moved on to HBS. So tell us a little bit about some of the new work that you're doing. I think you mentioned to me that you're working on some new concepts. Talk to us a little bit about that. I'm sure they're interesting, and I'm sure you're leveraging some of the recent conversations and interactions that you've had. Yeah, so just really blessed that this opportunity came my way. I mean, as you can imagine, what's happened in business schools is there's a huge appetite these days for entrepreneurship, maybe away from banking a little bit since the 08 crisis. And because of that, many schools are trying to diversify their faculty and offerings aligned with entrepreneurial tasks, selling being one of them. So HBS is just a phenomenal opportunity for me, not just to build out the sales curriculum there, but also because so many business schools look to them for the curriculum they'd like to teach at their school it's just a great opportunity for me to influence how selling is taught at, at many schools across the world. The other great thing is it just gives me, and they actually encourage continued involvement in practice. So I get to see hundreds of data points every year, whether it's as an investor, advisor, board member, students that I'm working with, et cetera, around the insides of sales and marketing functions and, and try to step back and do some pattern recognition. So the big thing I've been seeing lately is I've been continuing to look in the startup phase, reflecting on some of the guidance I, I made in the sales acceleration formula, 
And I think there's a big void today around entrepreneurs who successfully navigate the lean startup methodology, arguably founded by Eric Ries, develop MVPs, remain agile, create prototypes, find product market fit. But I think there's just a huge confusion at that point by both entrepreneurs and investors of like, what do I do next? And I see many organizations just be like, go fast, hire 20 reps, and let's start tripling revenue and doubling revenue. And that leads to a lot of issues down the road. And I think that what I've been working on is trying to codify a framework that organizations can follow that you might describe as finding go-to-market fit once you find product market fit. And there's essentially three stages to it, which is customer success, then unit economics, and then growth and moat. So how can you prove and, and develop the ability to time and time again sign up dozens of customers every month or quarter and have 80% of them realizing the value that you pitched them on within a few months. And once- so how, how do you do that? Yeah, so um, the biggest thing there is many organizations will measure the success of that based on whether people are canceling and churning or retaining. And in a lot of contexts, that metric is a significant lagging indicator to actually what's happening. So the first step to actually do that is to do some self-reflection on your own offering and decide what is your leading indicator to customer success that can be observed within the first month or two of a customer's life. And in the industry, a lot of businesses refer to that as the aha moment. For Dropbox, it was one file, one folder, one device. For Slack, it's 2,000 people on a team that are collaborating. For HubSpot, it was the usage of five or more features out of their 25 feature platform. These are all things that could be observed within the first month or two of usage. And once that's identified, measure the heck out of it every month to see that you're getting better and run a bunch of experiments on how to get better, which range from the customers you choose to sign up, the expectations you set during the sales process, the onboarding techniques that you use to onboard them, and any sort of product enhancements, whether it's in-app messaging or ease of use on the UX, to help customers get to that metric fast enough. So just not enough organizations, they skip that step and jump to measuring you know, revenue, top-line revenue as their key to success. And I just think that's an easy metric to go after and completely band-aid an enormous deficiency of creating customer value. I don't disagree with you at all. In fact, I'm reminded, I think the Salesforce one was, do they build a dashboard? Right. Right. Yeah. They're a moment. So that, that's where you need to focus first. And then, and then you can move on to unit economics once you've nailed that. And unit economics at that stage, that's when things like your comp plan design, your pricing model, scalable demand gen tactics really become critical. But I wouldn't recommend working on those in the first phase. And so this model provides a clearer picture of the milestones we need to go through and what aspects of the sales machine development matter most at each stage. Tell us about the key parts of sort of the last stage, which is growth and moat. And you know, obviously, I know what you're talking about when you say moat, but a lot of people might not. So walk us through what the concept of a moat means for a business. Sure. So it's a barrier to entry. And as I reflect on different businesses that I've met over the last couple of years that got to 10 million, got to 20 million, and then completely flatlined, a lot of times it was because of a lack of moat development. And so what that means is 
great. You figured out customer value. You found product market fit. You're doing it in a profitable way with great unit economics. You're scaling fast, doubling revenue every every year. Guess what? Copycats are coming. So you got to ask yourself, if two really smart engineers from Google quit their job and raised 10 million bucks from Sequoia and built exactly what you have, why do new prospects still buy what you have and not what they have? Especially if they sell it cheaper. And so, you know, it's a difficult thing to do, but it could be anything from a network effect to benchmarking features that you provide to even like in HubSpot's case, like the creation of a category inbound marketing and the association that we were the best and you should come with us. There's just ways to develop that barrier to entry that are very difficult for people to copy and it it serves as a sustainable advantage. And I usually, I put it last just because sometimes the growth contributes to that moat. And at the same time, it's advisable to take time to build the moat, even if it comes at the sacrifice of accelerated growth. So if I had to choose, if I'm talking to a company like, yeah, we can triple our revenue this year, or we can double our revenue, but take the R&D cycles and time to develop a moat around it, I would choose the latter. So that's what I mean by moat. And, and the things that come into play during the growth and moat stage are some of the stuff we've talked about today, which is the scalable hiring process and onboarding process. Oftentimes, it means looking at multiple segments within your business and running those as slightly different motions, like if you're selling to SMBs and enterprises, or if you're selling to healthcare and finance, you may have to look at bifurcating your overall sales motion to be custom to each one of those segments. So those are some of the things that will come up at that stage. That's very helpful. One very specific question, just because you just brought it up. Do you prefer, if you had to choose between segmenting by size of customer, meaning enterprise versus SMB, or by industry vertical, what would you choose? Yeah, again, context is king. It's such an interesting question, Sam, that it was the fifth case that I wrote at HBS about a great company down in New York called View the Space, VTS. Really complicated sales deployment decision. There is no universal answer there. The only thing I could say is you want to drive that decision based on commonalities in buyer behavior. And so the mistake that I see across the industry is jumping too quickly into a geographic um, segmentation just because that was our roots as a field. The only way to sell was to shake hands with people and see people. And it's just logical to cluster your reps around the prospects that they want to go after. And that's still the case if your sale process requires a lot of handshaking and in-person meetings, but those are declining. And so you have more options like size of company or vertical, or you can do size of company and then vertical. So the way I drive that decision is based on where I'm seeing the most commonality in buyer behavior and the difference across those segments so that I can specialize my reps around that behavior. Yeah, makes sense. Um, We're almost at the end of our time together, Mark. Give us a quick update. First of all, thank you, because this has been exceptionally useful. But tell us what you're up to now uh, so we can start as a global audience figuring out if we can help you in some way. And tell us what you're up to, because it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I mean, we're in the early phases. I almost don't want to go public, but we can talk about it, Sam. So I'm looking to double down on the investment side, and we're putting together, um, we're in the early phases of experimenting with whether a go-to-market fund would work, meaning backed by go-to-market professionals helping organizations 
at that go-to-market stage. And so it's really just a, a nice continuation of all the work that I've been doing. It's going quite well uh, with our early discussions. And I think the way you can help is um, if you know of organizations that you know, are setting up their go-to-market capability or maybe struggling a little bit, just continue to reach out. And um, I may have more resources at my disposal to, to help along those lines. That makes perfect sense. Very sort of last question, as I call it, we like to follow the breadcrumb trail. So when you think about influential people or books or content that's really impacted you, could be recently, like the book you're reading right now, uh, or somebody that really mentored you, give us some names of people or books or pieces of content that we should know about as we pursue self-improvement and, and evolution of the sales discipline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say I'll, I'll go back to some like really old school stuff. A question I often get from my students is, listen, I have no background in sales. How do I learn to sell? Knowing the sales hacker community, I know a lot of folks are still selling or in the earlier stages of their sales career. So there's a three book sequence, two of which are, are quite classics. One, geez, it's got to be 80 years old. How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. It's really funny to read about the early sales of typewriters, and it's also equally amazing how applicable they are to modern sales professions today. So dig into that one. The second is not quite as long of a class, old of the classic, but it's still a classic, and that's Spin Selling by Neil Rackham. I still think that Neil was the forefather in thought leadership around codifying the process of understanding the buyer's perspective reframing that buyer's perspective, which such is critical and important skill in selling and just helping the buyer to prioritize the challenges that are ahead of them to, to make sales move faster. And then the final one is the, is the more near-term classic around uh, the challenger sale. I think they've done an equally good job of helping to redefine modern salespersonship in terms of uh, defining problems, help customers understand those problems and telling presentations according to what you find. So that's kind of like my three-prong classic on developing belly-to-belly sales skills. That's awesome. That's great. Last question, and thank you again so much for joining us. If folks want to reach out to you, for example, if they've got ideas about companies that need go-to-market assistance or they just want to ping you, are you open to that? Is there a channel that you prefer? Do you prefer LinkedIn? Do you prefer email? How? And is that okay? Absolutely. I mean, it's how I stay in touch with the industry. I, I make as much time as possible to help. So two ways are LinkedIn is great. Or on my faculty page at HBS, we can just Google my name and HBS. There's an email, a button there. You can send me a note there. That's awesome. Mark, thanks so much for your time. Uh, it was great speaking with you. Thank you, Sam. Hi, folks. It's Sam's Corner. Mark Robert's dropping knowledge on the Sales Hacker podcast. The great thing about talking to Mark is just the specifics and the details. He's done it so he can dive into detail and really give us some actionable advice. A couple of things jumped out at me. One of them is around the interview process. So I think coachability is a widely and oft discussed paradigm for thinking about potential success. And what Mark mentioned is that he specifically deploys a sort of a coachability module into the interview by jumping into a role play, watching how the candidate responds, and then stopping midway, giving feedback and seeing if the person can respond to that feedback. And that's one mechanism to demonstrate coachability. And if they can react really positively and moderate uh, and adjust their behavior uh, in the context of that interview, 
then there's a high likelihood that they will be successful uh, at other points in their career. So that's kind of one really interesting thing that he mentioned. The second, when it comes to training and onboarding, which is near and dear to my heart, an overemphasis on product training and an underemphasis on buyer training. And I think if we're all going to be building really effective training and onboarding programs, first and most important is understanding the buyer's perspective and the buyer journey. Empathy, understanding where they come from, what their motivations are. Let's spend a lot of time teaching our teams about how the buyer thinks, what they do day to day and what their key pain points are, and also teach about the complexities of the product and how it works. So this has been Sam's Corner, and we also want to thank our sponsors as we depart from you this week in the Sales Hacker Podcast. So if you're interested in learning more about the show itself, see upcoming guests, play more episodes from our lineup of sales leaders, first I encourage you to go to saleshacker.com and head to the podcast tab. You'll also find us on iTunes, Google Play, or anywhere that podcasts are performed. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your peers on LinkedIn, Twitter, or elsewhere. And if you want to get in touch with me, you can always find me on Twitter at Sam F. Jacobs or on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Sam F. Jacobs. Professional correspondence, probably better on LinkedIn. Twitter has more potentially offensive ramblings. And then finally, shout out to our sponsors. It's Aircall, your advanced call center software, complete business phone and contact center, 100% integrated into any CRM and outreach, a customer engagement platform that helps efficiently and effectively engage prospects to drive more pipeline and close more deals. I will see you next time.